At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to the peripheral. I uh, went to Obsessed Fest in Ohio, and I ended up meeting a bunch of people there and, uh, and actually offered to do a few interviews, which is this episode. Uh, I talked to two lovely people who, there's no other way to put this, both went through pregnancies where anything and everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. We talk about postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, and the death of a child. So just putting that up front, this first interview, I talked to Caitlin, who talks about the lack of information she was given after her pregnancy and all of the trials and tribulations that she went through. My name is Caitlin Gibson, and uh, I am, I don't even know how old I am now, 30-something, and I have two young boys that I was told I would never have, and I still have recurring issues from post-traumatic stress disorder, postpartum depression, and postpartum anxiety. Did it start happening with the first one, or... So I have Irish twins um, because when people tell you you're infertile, apparently you have babies like back to back. Um, (laughs) And uh, it was only with my oldest, actually, because he was not a typical pregnancy. He was not, nothing was typical about that kid and still isn't. Uh, When I didn't find out I was pregnant with him until I think I was 12 weeks pregnant. I was either 10 or 12 weeks pregnant with him when I found out um, I had uh, I don't remember the name of the full disorder, but it's HG is the abbreviated form. Um, so I had permanent morning sickness with him from seven weeks. I thought I just got like like a parasite essentially when we were on vacation. Surprise, um, it was a baby. Um, so had morning sickness from seven weeks until he was born at 37 weeks. Uh, the birth with him, so a normal labor lasts a while, right? I had an emergency induction with him. So they said, you're going to be here for days. Okay, cool. Nothing happens, nothing happens. And I went from nothing happening to holding him within 24 minutes. Whoa. And that is not good on your body. So. Wow. I thought you were going to say 24 hours, but yeah. Oh, no, I wish. I wish. Um, the second was 15 hours, and I give that a 10 out of 10. So, so my husband is actually a nurse, and seeing the look on his face of, like, sheer terror the thing that wasn't mentioned is I'm having like a full-blown meltdown because I don't know. I don't know. I just started sobbing. Um, hormones is the actual answer. But in the moment, no clue what's going on. He doesn't know. He's scared something horrific is happening. The nurse comes in, and she's like just casually like being super calm, and he had to scream what is wrong with her before he could get an answer. And they just finally, they're like, oh, we're just having a baby. Like we should have just known. Wow. We're new here. Yeah, I, I'm not trying to 
blast on the medical industry or any doctor or individual nurse or anything, but it seems to just be, hey, this is done now and you survived and go home and have a great life. And even what should be a pretty routine procedure or something like that. So what were some of some of the ramifications? What was some of the aftermath that you had to deal with? Yeah, it's funny you say that. Um, so when he was being born, the reason it was so quick is um, it's called precipitous labor. And you have that when something, usually if something's wrong with you. Um, and it turns out that I went, I was medically induced for preeclampsia. And it turns out we went straight to eclampsia, um, which is really bad. So, like, I was having seizures during that time, and we didn't know. He, at one point, my son got stuck in my birth canal and almost suffocated, um, and I was, like, losing my heartbeat completely. So those were a couple of them. And then after he was born, um, there's a lot of shock your body goes through because birth is a trauma. And not only is, like, I just had this baby and, like, these, like, you have this huge hormonal reaction when you see your baby for the first time. Like, I was shaking really bad. I was super nauseated. Um, I couldn't sleep at all. And then later we found out, because of everything that happened, I was actually just in shock, which I didn't know could happen during a birth. Why isn't this talked about? Like, I, I would just you know, assume, you know, you, yes, why shouldn't you go into shock when you're passing out something that's the size of a small watermelon through an orifice? Like, that's yeah. a traumatic experience, you know? Right? Somebody looked at me. I remember, like, I remember going in for, like, my six-week checkup, and she asked me how I was, and I just started, like, sobbing, right? That should have been my first clue that I was not okay mentally. Spoiler, took me a while longer to figure it out. Mm. But, like, she looked at me, she's like, you just went through a trauma. And I'm like, well, you know, you say that, and it makes a lot of sense, lady, but we didn't get there on our own. I, I guess I would just assume that, you know, there's a team that will deliver the baby. But where's the after-surgery team follow up with or have a support group or have a medical team say, okay, where are we at? We're one week out. How are you doing? But that's not how this goes is it uh, no not at all um we were we did have i will admit and i will give the hospital credit we had extraordinary like care while we were in the hospital there was a lot going on there um like my kid wouldn't eat and that then he had colic like that kid's just not i'm so happy that he was my first kid because if it had been reversed like hard pass you know but they were very good to us and they tried to make sure we were educated but I think they just assume we know more than we know because no birth class that I took, at least, maybe I'm wrong, I can't speak for all of them, prepared me for the complete and total shit show that followed about three months later. Like, none of them. And that's what I wish I would have had. So three months later, what, uh, what's, how did you start feeling? So I knew I wasn't okay, but, like, I just thought that I was – I never wanted kids, right? So – I thought maybe I was just stupid and didn't know how to take care of a baby because I'd never been around them. I am the baby of my family. Like, it was me and then nothing really. So I'd never been around them. No one really mentioned feeling the way I felt. So I'm like, okay, obviously I'm just stupid and don't know what I'm doing, so this is just, like, extraordinarily hard. And we had friends over one night, uh, and I made carnitas, and then I was folding laundry after they left. And I don't even know what my husband said. He said something. And I just threw all of the laundry on the ground, like, hard and screamed it shouldn't be this hard and started just, like, a breakdown. 
Yeah. And he just stared at me, and he's like, um, okay, you're having, you're having a hard time. Um, I'm not trying to be harsh here, but do we need to go get you checked in somewhere? And I remember screaming back, I don't know. Yeah. And we just sat there and tried to figure it out. We are fortunate, though, that we do have a very good psychiatric hospital attached to the hospital I delivered at. So if we needed to go that route, we could have very easily because that's not a normal thing. And we were very blessed to have that very close to us yeah. because we really thought I would have needed it. Um, but instead, we went, I went to the doctor instead because I gave myself a night to just calm down. <laughs> Probably the better plan. You know, I agree because I don't know what they would have said to me had I gone in, and I don't think I want to. Like, that's what I knew. But working through it was really hard because in order to get treatment, I have to leave my kid, which is hard. Um, And then we find out that, like, the reason you're having this issue, um, and one thing that just came back to me is my kid had a lot of audiology appointments because we were trying to figure out if he could hear or not. And the guy who checked us in one morning was the same guy who checked us in when I was getting induced. And I fell to the floor hyperventilating and just losing it just because he said hi to me. And I was, like, in a panic. I couldn't handle it. I felt like puking. It was really bad. We finally get back to audiology, and my husband's like, you are going to see your doctor today. Something's not right. That's not a normal emotion. Like, that's not a normal response to have. I don't know if you have PTSD from what you went through, but you need to go. And it turns out I did. I did have PTSD. Just from seeing that guy's face, a lot of stuff clicked for us. Because that's not normal. So I remember waking up. We go to the doctor. And, like, like I mentioned before, I walk in. And, like, at my six-week visit, when she asked me how I was, I just started, like, sobbing, right? You'd think... You'd think I'd know then, like, girl, something's wrong with you. No, of course not. Um, why take anything the easy way? It's not my, it's not my MO, you know? Yeah. And I go, and I'm like, okay, it's like something's obviously wrong. Things I never thought about that can compound onto it. So, like, the traumatic birth that was beyond a normal birth, the fact that I already had anxiety and depression before I had kids, um, that plays a very big role into it and makes you more susceptible to postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. Um, I had a kid who cried 14 hours a day, nonstop, no naps because he had colic, and he had a food allergy, and he wouldn't eat, and we were being threatened with feeding tubes because he couldn't gain weight. So I basically have this, like, two-and-a-half-month-old baby that's still the size of a newborn. That's stressful. And all of this is going on, plus sometimes your hormones just don't regulate properly after giving birth, and, you know, you need medical intervention. And it was just overwhelming. I was extremely sleep-deprived. And then because of this postpartum anxiety, no one can take care of my kid but me. Um, So PPA, which a lot of people attribute to basically, like, your motherly instincts, but it's motherly instincts on overdrive because I was convinced, and it sounds so stupid to say out loud now, like so removed from the situation, the little sleep I did get in the beginning, I would wake up and have to make sure he was breathing. Like, are you breathing? Are you alive? Okay, you're alive. Probably sleep like 10 minutes and have to do it all over again. When he finally would nap a couple of hours at a time, it's like, okay, but like, 
are you alive? Are you dead? I'm pretty sure you're dead. You have to be dead. And just it's crippling because it's not like, oh, he's just sleeping so good. No. I My brain convinced me my child died in his sleep constantly. And it's terrifying because what happens if I walk away and he quits breathing? That was, like, crippling because I didn't go anywhere without him for more than, like, 10 minutes to, like, check the mail until he was eight months old. And just, like... It's an obsessive-compulsive anxiety-based behavior about checking. That That's a really good way to put it, yeah. Because you just have, like, it could be with that. It could be he coughs while taking a bottle, and my brain convinces me he's choking. You don't make noise when you're actively choking. You're just aspirating at that point. But, like, I'm convinced it's just terrible. So that's why no one else can take care of them, because I have to be there. I have to know. And it gnaws at you, like, even now sometimes I catch it. Um, like, when I was at a fest, I would text my husband who was with the kids, and I'm like, so how they doing? They're fine. Please just enjoy yourself. You wouldn't even let him be alone with the father. No. Like, and bless that man because he understood. He was not offended. But I couldn't do it. I was terrified. It It's, like, paralyzing almost because, I have this guilt of, like, I'm already not a good mom, right? Because an instance is I can remember holding him and he would not sleep again. Typical thing, but that night was just super bad. And I remember getting so angry and, like, just wanting him to stop screaming that in that moment I'm like, holy crap, this is why they tell you not to shake your baby. Because, like, in that moment I could see how somebody would shake their baby to just make it stop. Because that's a lot at once and it sounds terrible to say out loud but I wish somebody right then would have said to me it's okay to want to shake your baby like that'll happen because I couldn't say that like are they going to take my kid away if I say that out loud that's terrifying and no one says it out loud yeah and and it's you feel like you're a bad mom because the baby won't stop crying you feel like a bad mom because they're not gaining weight Every time you take the kid in for a checkup, the the doctors and people are going to look at you with that side eye of what are you doing to your kid, and you're an emotional wreck, and you haven't slept in how many nights? Too freaking many, let me tell you. That boy didn't sleep until he was 13 months old. I don't know how we made it. I'm going to be honest. I don't know. If I just go a couple nights without sleep or little sleep, I'm cranky. I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to go weeks or months. I, was say, I can remember tidbits of it, but I'm just going to go ahead and say to anyone who knew me then, I'm sure I wasn't pleasant, and I'm sorry. <laughs> like, pretty confident I was not a pleasant person. And, you know, my bad, but we got through it. So This might not make it on the episode, but there was a time when I uh, I called Aaron after they just had one of their children and it was like eight fifteen, eight thirty, and he picks up the phone and he's like hello and i'm like hey i was just calling he's like it's too late to call the kid just woke up and he like slammed the phone on me and i'm like obviously yeah the kid i haven't slept in days and he finally got to sleep and my phone call woke him up and it's my fault like yeah. uh. <laughs> look i get it i I was very, from the beginning, like, not that the kids slept, but, like, you will get used to normal noises because I cannot stop my life for you. Yeah. That boy now, turns out he's hard of hearing. He can't hear crap. 
It's great. (laughs) Fireworks don't wake him up. It's fantastic. Someone was mowing outside. He's just sleeping through it. Like, no big deal. It's fine. (laughs) Just took 13 months to get there. (laughs) Great. Well, that's another thing that I didn't mention. Like, in the beginning, he fails his hearing test, and we don't know if he's deaf or, like, hard of – we don't know. So I'm like, okay, cool. Turns out he has a genetic disorder that, spoiler, I also have, and my whole life makes sense. So (laughs) it's fine. He's just hard of hearing. He's got really cute hearing aids. He signs. He talks. It's fantastic. I guess you could look at that as the silver lining that you found out he had this disorder. Therefore, you found out you have it, and now things make more sense, maybe. Right. That's that's really where we were at because, like, we go, and the only reason I got genetically tested is because he had this, like, horrific carrier syndrome where, like, you're born deaf, blind, and, like, a whole bunch of other stuff goes wrong. And I'm like, oh, no. What if we have a baby like that? Like, it's fine, but, like, I'd like to know. So I get tested, like, no, you don't have it, um, but you do have the same condition he has. I'm like, oh, cool. Your child had colic. Now, what what is that? What are the symptoms, and how does one deal with it? So colic is defined as a baby who cries three or more hours a day, three or more times a week. And that crying is not related to, like, them being hungry, um, them being tired, anything like that. So it's unexplained crying. Um, A lot of people believe that it's related to um, digestional health, um, but it's not. I hate to break it to everyone. Your kid's actually just crying because they're crying. That's very heartbreaking. You can't always change their diet. Um, Sometimes that is it, but he would cry, like, anywhere between 9 and 14 to 15 hours a day, every day, nonstop. And how one should deal with it is you should feel confident enough to set your child down in a crib and walk away from them. But, like, your new, like this fresh baby is screaming so helpless, and you just want to fix it, which is why you don't set them down. And that's where the trouble comes in, right? Because you can't set them down, but you need to. Um, I mean, you're the mother, you're the parents, you're intrinsically wired to take care of this child. So putting them down and walking away is going against every instinct, every motive, every single thing that your body's telling you not to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's it's really hard. Um, I can remember setting him down one time in his crib, perfectly safe in there, and I went into the bathroom and just turned on the shower and started, like, sobbing because I actually sat him down and I felt terrible. And that feeling was remarkably better than being in the room with him screaming, which was really weird to realize. Like, that was an eye-opener for me because I'm like, oh, that, like, five-minute cry sesh was way less stressful, probably for both of us. But I I bought a really nice pair of earbuds and listened to a lot of podcasts is actually how I dealt with it because it drowned out enough of the screaming, like, the high-pitched shrills. It was better for me because I could handle that, just, like, damping it down a little bit was better than just hearing it full force constantly. and then. When he was 13 months old, I'm like six, seven months pregnant with our second. And I was like, great, neither of them are going to sleep. It's going to be freaking awful. Hopefully we live because I don't know at this point. And I'm like, you're going to learn how to sleep. And he did. I really don't know. I don't know how that worked out, but it did. That's all that matters. <laughs> it's just time, patience, and something finally clicking. You know, How did they approach you when you sought help? That's once again, I have to give 
my hospital system a lot of credit here. They actually have uh, you see a social worker because they're like, we are not equipped. We are equipped to say you have this, right? We are not equipped to actually help you find all of the resources you need. So they paired me up with a social worker, and then we found me like a treatment facility where I did outpatient stuff. Um, They found me a lot of alternative therapies and just sending me events to go to with my kids so I didn't feel so alone. I was shocked, to be honest. I expected them to tell me I was crazy and here's the meds, which, because we're still not good at dealing with mental health, right? Especially when you consider my doctor is definitely like mid to late boomer is what I want to call her. I'm like, oh, great, you're going to tell me that it's fine. Just deal with it. We all have our issues. No, not at all. She actually sat there and was like, can I hug you? Because you seem like you need a hug right now. Like, she was very sweet. Um, they did a lot of good stuff for us. Uh, like, they they were running a study on postpartum depression and light therapy. So they had me doing light therapy to see if that would help it. They give you, like, you have to sit in a dark-ish room, and then um, you put on these really weird-looking glasses, and you turn them on, and it's basically, like, mini little, like, daylight bulbs to mimic the sun to see if getting the sun exposure in the dead of friggin' winter in Michigan can help with depression, specifically postpartum depression. So kind of like the people who have seasonal depression, how they have, like, the lamps that they sit under, kind of like that, but directly on your eyeballs. Okay, interesting. Not heard of that. (laughs) Same, until they told me about it. I'm like, look at you guys. You're on top of it. So how was your your marriage going at this time? Not not good. Um, so I we had kids because my husband wanted kids. It was never on my agenda, and so our marriage was super rocky before I even got pregnant because infertility will do that to you, right? And it was seven years, no kids, no kids. We still don't know how we had kids. We were elated. I was pregnant, and then everything kind of fell apart again, and. He was on a different schedule. COVID hit right in there, too. Just all of the help we did have was gone. Um, Not that we had much to start with, but, I mean, the little we did have was gone. Um, The sheer panic, it was stress all the time. We just realized, like, a month ago that we have been living in constant fight or flight since March 2020. It just finally ended, and we're like, oh, this feels amazing. Not that everything's dandy, but like, dang, getting out of that feels real good. (laughs) It just sucks because it doesn't always strengthen your relationships because you've gone from Mm -hmm. being a husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriend to mom and dad struggling and fighting tooth and nail every second of the day. Oh, yeah. Plus, like, parenting styles don't add up. So, like, that's a whole different thing. Bands break up over creative differences. I can only imagine how parenting styles can break up the band. <laughs> it's it gets intense sometimes. To quote Jillian from True Crime Obsessed, it's chaos down here, Tom. Like that's all it was. It's pure chaos. So we had kids and all of our friends for the most part were like, Okay, bye. <laughs> yeah. It happens. It's fine. We moved far away too. Like it happens. <laughs> I've sadly lost a lot of friends once they had kids because it just, it turns into a 
they're always busy. They're being good parents. They're taking care of the children. I don't care to sit on the phone with them for two hours listening to a play-by-play of what their child is doing. And I just want to talk about a podcast or talk about something else. And uh, it just that's just the way the world is. And it, you know, it puts a lot of stress on friendships sometimes. It does. And that's where, like, I don't blame them. Also, you know, you and I just want the same things out of life. That's what I'm looking for, too. I don't want to talk about my kids. I just want time to be myself. <laughs> It'd be great. But yeah, it's it just strains all relationships in general. Like, it's just hard. So at this point, feeling at least not better, but you're feeling like you're not getting any worse, and uh, now mm-hmm. you're able to let go of some of your parenting responsibilities and maybe focus a little bit more on your relationships? Yeah. Um, at, I don't remember when, but I remember at some point during treatment, I'm like, you know what, Josh, we should go on a date night. He's like, okay, we'll bring the baby. And I'm like, no, we are going to leave him with our friend. And she said she'd take him. She's a doula too. So like she knows what she's doing with kids. She's been a nanny most of her life. I'm like, we can trust her with him. And we're going to go on an actual date. And we did. And bless my friend so much. Because she was sending me, like, every 30 minutes just, like, a picture of him alive. I never asked for one. She was sending them to me. She's like, he's okay. He just ate. He's good. And, like, it was so nice to get out and be, like, ourselves again and still know my kids safe. Like, that was such a nice balance for us. And now we still go out, like, every week or two. We have someone who comes over and watches our kids. We're like, this is great. And that was a huge breakthrough for us, like me realizing, no, they're going to live. It's it's okay. And we tried to pay her, and she said no. And I'm like, you are the sweetest person ever. If you're spending time with loved ones for the holidays, chances are you're going to hear a lot of stories, the ones you love to hear and the ones you've heard too many times. But have you ever wanted to help your loved one document these timeless stories? It can be challenging to write an entire book of life memories, but StoryWorth makes it easy and fun. Every week, StoryWorth will email your loved one a single life-related question that you can pick from their collection, like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done? Or what's the furthest you've ever traveled? This week's question was, what made you change your job? All they have to do is reply with a story. Then after a year, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and memories, and even photos, into an exquisite hardcover book, creating a valued keepsake. I don't have memories of my childhood, so I'm having my mom tell more stories about my childhood so I can hear about that and about her own childhood. Get started with your loved one for the holidays, and before you know it, you'll be cherishing these timeless stories for generations to come. Help your family share their story this holiday season with StoryWorth. Go to storyworth.com slash peripheral today and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash peripheral. Save $10 on your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash peripheral. Like I said earlier, it would have been so much easier had someone actually said out loud to me. Like what I needed, I think, in the moment of like in my doctor's office, just like losing my mind, was for someone to look at me and just be like, it's okay to feel like you're going to shake your baby. That's not, that doesn't make you terrible. Like you're not a terrible mom because you feel that you're just stressed out and sleep deprived. Like that's okay. Just this is how we cope with it, right? Like that would have been really helpful for me for them to say, this is how we cope with it. Instead of, because nobody talks about it, 
it kind of almost backs you into a corner of like what happens if I say this out loud because terrible things could happen. And I really think it wouldn't have gotten nearly as bad as, as it did if anyone would have looked at me and said, no, it's okay to feel your crappy feelings. You're still a good mom. Your kid is very well taken care of. We can tell. It's just hard, and no one ever says that. And it is. It's really freaking hard. I, I wish somebody had a list for you. You know, here's the things to expect, and here's what's going to be the norm. It would be really nice. I mean, like, they do tell you, like, there is a difference. There's something called baby blues, which is just where, like, you're crying a lot, basically. I don't know why it's called baby blues. That's a really horrible name. But they tell you there's that's different than postpartum depression. Okay, but when I know something's wrong in the beginning, I shouldn't have to guess about is it one or is it the other. And while my hospital's great, you should make it easier for me to access the care for that. It just shouldn't be a guessing game, basically. And I don't know why we don't talk about it. I don't know why we don't talk about what can go wrong during birth. Because, um, you know, in my wildest dreams, a 24-minute labor is not something I, like, if you're having a C-section, I guess I can anticipate that, but not, like, I just had your average delivery that wasn't so average, I guess. <laughs> But I don't know if people are scared of, like, terrifying women and not having kids because every time people are like, can you tell me what your birth was like? No, we'll talk about it after you have your kid. I will answer any specific questions you have, but no, because neither of mine were typical. We don't need to couch things as much as we do, and everybody telling women, like, no, you're fine, like, you just had a baby, like, it's fine, it's not fine. Yeah. And someone just needs to say it. And, it, you know, personally me, I really just want to scream it. But as far as, like, me goes, I did not anticipate, um, like, if I hear beeping sometimes now, like when my second was in um, the NICU for a while after he was born, the beeping of his monitors still to this day will, like, paralyze me with fear. And that's something that I know came from that because I didn't have that until that day. So hearing any of, like, the IV beeps and stuff, medical TV shows are hard. Um, just randomly hearing one, it's, like, really weird to just sit there and be like, who takes me back and not in a good way. It's just really weird to be randomly, like, somewhere and hear one and, like, panic for a second and then have to, like, regulate yourself down. Like, yeah. right now, we are safe and it's okay. That alarm is not for me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was the rough part. It's like I'm in my second like Nikki room and I keep hearing them and I'm like, oh no, not me. Okay, wait, is that my kid? No, he was fine. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you, Caitlin. Next up, I speak with Andrea, and Andrea had the worst thing a parent or a mother could ever go through, which is the loss of a child, and it wasn't just the loss of a child she had multiple losses in her family and hearing how she was able to pull through this and make something beautiful out of it was very inspiring and in fact she's the one that named this episode she said call it gluing the pieces back together So my name is Andy, um, and I am from Columbus, Ohio, and I've lived here 
almost all of my 39 years, with the exception of a few years that I uh, moved to Florida on a whim to be with a boy. Don't do that. It's stupid. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So this journey has been really uh, difficult and really heavy. In 2017, I met my husband. Actually, it was, this is crazy. So um, I met him and went on a second date. And my favorite movie is Pitch Perfect. I have seen that movie so many times. And the reason it's my favorite is because uh, I had gone through a really, really bad breakup with an ex who was a heroin addict and who just destroyed my life for like seven years. And so for six months every day, I watched that movie because I loved the soundtrack and it would make me laugh. It was your escapism. yeah. Exactly. I had lost everything because he just, I mean, he just destroyed my life. And so I was living with my parents and I'm like 27 years old and, you know, I'm kind of in a job that I disliked so much. Um, so I'm, our second date, I went over there and he's like, Hey, you want to watch a movie? And I'm like, yeah. And so we saw, what about, I said, what about Pitch Perfect? And he's like, you know, when that movie came out, my brother and I watched it every day for a month. And I like low key texted my mom. I was like, I just found my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And I did. And three months later we were married and we've been married almost six years. And it was, it's insane. I'm very, very lucky to have someone that has gone through this journey with me. And a lot of times when people lose a child, it rips them apart and we actually, this, I don't want to say bonded because it's not necessarily the correct word, but it meshed us together more because we both know that neither of this was neither of our faults. Like, you know, she didn't die in an accident or anything like that. So not only is this a story of her, but it's a story of grief because in the last six years, we have lost I think a total of nine people, including my father and his uh, grandfather and um, his brother, uh, he, uh, he ended his life in September of last year. So that was, I mean, it's been awful. So grief has become my BFF and just kind of like decided that it was going to hang on and become part of our lives. So this is kind of like, more of a a conversation of embracing it rather than fighting it because uh, grief is cyclical and it will creep up on you. And no matter what you do, it's going to, it's going to show its face. So her name was S and she had a, a very, very, very rare brain disorder. There's actually only one doctor in the state of Ohio who really even had any expertise in it. Um, thankfully she was at, uh, Nationwide uh, Children's, but it's a really long word. It's called semi-lobar holoprosencephaly. It took a really long time to learn how to spell that, but um, so essentially, when your brain is developing in utero, you n- it normally splits into two hemispheres. You have the like the left and the right hemisphere. Um, but for one in a hundred thousand like births, um, a baby will have a development where it stays in a ball and it doesn't separate into two hemispheres. And then the cerebral fluid essentially gets kind of stuck in a bubble in the middle and her brain didn't have any definition. So her prognosis, we found out at 26 weeks that uh, she was terminal. 
And that's something that I don't, I don't think people understand the gravity of, especially as a woman who for a really long time tried to get pregnant. I did with my ex for, for a long time and was told that I couldn't have children because of a specific disorder that I have. And so for me to get pregnant immediately with my new husband and then to find out 26 weeks later that she's going to die was just like a punch in the gut. It was, and this doctor, this doctor made me so mad. Uh, she comes in and the, the tech, you know, is doing the ultrasound and she goes and gets the doctor and the doctor comes in with like a packet of paper and she's like, oh, by the way, your daughter has, you know, holoprosencephaly. Here's some paperwork about it. Um, unfortunately, this is a terminal disease. If you have any questions, let me know and walked out of the room. <laughs> and my mom and I were like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I just looked at my mom and I was like, what, it, what does that mean? Mom, what does that mom? What does that mean? And so she's like, hold on. And she runs out and the, the doctor's already in with another, client, uh, another patient. And so the nurse gave us a number to call and, you know, I will, oh, I curse that woman. I curse that woman. <laughs> she just, so, so 26 weeks, um, you know, there's a chance that she's, she's not going to make it, um, to birth. And it's a possibility that she may be stillborn. It's a possibility that you may have to carry her to term, even though she has passed because in the state of Ohio, they have an abortion ban. I was already past the 20 weeks. So, um, terminating the pregnancy was not an option at that point, even though there was the chance that she was going to die. And that I am a former pagan. I don't want to say I'm former. I just, I'm not practicing as much as I did before, but my husband grew up in a very religious Christian based home. So the, him having to deal with his faith and the prospect of us having to terminate the life of his, his child was incredibly hard for him, incredibly difficult. But at the same time, we didn't know if she was going to make it. So like, you know, there was a huge toss up of like, I think the closest state was like Illinois and the doctor, but she's like, listen, if you, if you want this, like, I will tell you where to go. Obviously I can't do it because I'm in the state of Ohio. Um, you know, I don't think that you're, you're making the wrong decision. You know, she was really supportive, which is such a blessing because like, that's just, that's awful. It's just, you know, you're, you're 26 weeks pregnant. That baby's been moving for 10 weeks. So late term abortion, especially in this atmosphere right now, nobody, nobody wants a late term abortion. Nobody. No. And I don't think, I don't think people understand that. It's, it's just like, you know, you go from picking out names to getting the nursery ready to immediately like, oh, now I have to worry about funeral plans and cremation and all of this stuff, life insurance, all of this stuff, because funerals are fucking expensive even for babies. I mean, I think ours was like just for her small thing was $700, but my, for my father, it was like 10,000. It's, it's ridiculous. But anyway, I digress. So as a diabetic and somebody who just internalizes stress so much, uh, which thanks mom and dad for teaching me that one. I just decided that I wanted to die. And that I didn't want to live without her. And so I just ate and I ate and I ate and I ate whatever I wanted. And 
my blood sugar was incredibly high. Like normal blood sugar is anywhere between 90 to 120 usually. Mine was in the 400s, almost 500s. It was like my coping mechanism was causing myself pain because at least if I was in pain, then I was the blame of this and I could accept it being, you know, my fault rather than just the universe or whatever, putting this out there. Like it had, uh, the pain had a purpose of hurting me and I could, I could accept that it's me. It's all me. Cause you know, you're used to blaming yourself for everything anyway. Yeah. You have to place blame somewhere. You can't just assume bad things happen for no reason. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What's crazy is, is that, uh, the week before she was born, my husband's, uh, my husband is from Arkansas and his grandpa was battling pancreatic cancer and he had a heart attack and a stroke on a, on a Saturday. And so he's like, I have to go. And I'm like, of course you have to go. You know, I'm not due to be induced until Thursday. So just go, uh, and just try to be back by then. It's like a 12 hour drive. You know, it's not, it's not horrible. And so he took off, uh, and I had a really bad headache that day and I could not shake this headache. I tried, you're not supposed to take like Excedrin or anything like that. I was taking whatever I could to make the headache stop. I took like four baths, tried to eat something. It just, it was the worst headache I've ever had. So I got up at like, I'm going to say like 8.30 and I walked into my kitchen to make something to eat. And the last thing I remember is going like making like a uh, uh, noise and then my hand flying up. And then I woke up on the floor. I just covered in pee. And I was like, what the hell just happened? And so I called my mom. And I said, something happened. My sister lived five minutes away and I called her and I was like, Hey, I need you to come here. I don't know. I just woke up. I passed out. I don't know what's wrong. And so, um, my mom started heading down. My mom lived about an hour away and my sister, she shows up and, um, I have like one of, I had like one of those, um, automatic door locks. So I walked down the stairs to unlock the door. And as soon as I opened it, she says that I, uh, looked at her and then seized and I had had two grand mal seizures. So preeclampsia is very, very horrible and dangerous and deadly, which I didn't know that I had because it was sudden onset preeclampsia and I hadn't had any blood pressure issues. So preeclampsia for people who don't know is when you have high blood pressure, it gets really, really scary. Um, And then when you're diabetic and you have uh, high blood pressure, you can have early onset preeclampsia where your blood sugar skyrockets and your blood pressure skyrockets. It's like the perfect storm of death, honestly. One of the last things I remember is uh, my, being in the ambulance, but I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't see anything. And I just said, Mom? And she said, I'm here. I'm here. And then I woke up um, two days later. And, I mean, I, the last, I don't remember much of anything. I remember um, my dad's shirt. He had a plaid shirt that he always wore because apparently he was in the room with me for a while And I remember the smell of chicken tenders because they wouldn't let me eat. And then I remember pushing and, um, she was born and she was four pounds, 15 ounces. She was a little tiny thing. And I asked my doctor, I was like, is she alive? 
And the doctor said, she sure is. She's peeing on you. (laughs) (laughs) And, and then that was, that was it. So they, so when you have a seizure like that, they hook you up to medication uh, called magnesium or, or mag. And it is like a bus hits you. You can't move. You're in agony. You're in pain. All your muscles hurt. It's like a super, super relaxant, but it helps to um, stop the seizures from happening. So when she was born, we had had the discussion with the hospital beforehand because it was, um, it was a Catholic hospital. So they didn't, you know, they, they didn't know like what my wishes were. And so, you know, there was no extenuating circumstances. If if something were to happen, we were just to let her go. There was no um, uh, resuscitation order. So she was immediately put on palliative hospice care because she, of her brain, they did like scans and everything like that to confirm that her brain was the way it was. And we had done an MRI and everything like that. So it was very much like, okay, well, this is it. Like, they're not wrong. This is actually what's, what's happening. And so he, he, my mom called him and was like, Hey, um, we're taking her to the hospital. Don't panic, (laughs) but you need to come back. And so him and his brother drove back, uh, after seeing their grandpa and taking a nap and he was back, um, two days later and he got to see her and everything like that. And she was just beautiful, just absolutely beautiful. She had, um, so because everything didn't form correctly, she had uh, facial deformities. So she had a cleft palate and a cleft lip, um, which this is terrible. People are going to come for me, but we, (laughs) we told her, we called her our little face sucker because she, she had, she had like little tendrils. It's awful. I'm terrible. I I mean, you're, you're going through the most traumatic thing of your life. It's not them going through it. So this is how you dealt with it and you can deal with it however you want. Yeah. And I just, I have this memory of, um, of coming home and sitting in my kitchen with her alone. And I just said to her, I know that you are not long for this world, but I love you so very much. And she just, you know, she was asleep on me. And so for four months, we were in and out of the hospital. Um, so, uh, because of the way her brain formed her glands, like her adrenal gland and all of that stuff, they fused together. So she had a really hard time regulating her potassium and her sodium. Um, and she couldn't keep her temperature up and all of these things. So it was just constantly in and out doing tests and stuff like that. She was born in, uh, uh, May and then, so October 17th, that's the day we had, we had just come home. She'd been in the hospital for 35 days and she was stable enough to go home. And so I packed her up, took a picture, put it on, you know, social media because I was so excited. And she, uh, we get home and there's something off. We both noticed it. It was like, I don't know if it's just because, um, she wasn't home. So she kind of like was used to being at the hospital, but she was very lethargic and just not herself. Um, and so the next day after she gets home, um, I was <laughs> so stupid. I was standing on my back porch and or on my back stairs down to my porch, to let my dogs out. And I slipped down the stairs and I, I landed on my ass and I, uh, bruised my tailbone and I broke my toenail. <laughs> 
The bruising of the tailbone is the like the worst thing ever. I've done it so many times. Oh, it's awful. And like, my husband's on the phone and he sees me like writhing in pain. He's like, are you okay? <laughs> no. So I, I had to go to the emergency room to get a tetanus shot because I had cracked my toenail on the on my door. Uh, that was fun. So uh, I went there and I came back and they had me on like painkillers and everything like that. And so I was like, I'm going to go lay down for a minute. Oh, this is awful. This is going to make me cry. I'm sorry. So my husband, so I go lay down and my husband's like, he took a video of her blowing bubbles. Oh my gosh, look how cute, you know? And then, then he's like, she's not breathing. And I, he yelled at me, she's not breathing. And he brought her into me and the bubbles weren't her blowing bubbles. It was her aspirating, but we didn't know that. So she stopped breathing and we, uh, I started CPR. Um, this is terrible. And it's like, you, you know, you have all of these dreams and you have all of these wishes that you just put out into the universe. Please don't, please let her be okay. You know, please don't let this happen by some miracle, let her live, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so we called the squad and I couldn't drive because I was on pain medication. So, um, we called our family and whatever. And so he got into the ambulance and she, she died in the ambulance three times and they kept, they brought her back. And so they rushed to children's and, um, I got there later because I had, my sister drove me and I, I wasn't allowed in the emergency room. My husband wouldn't let me go in there because she was not her. She was not her anymore. Um, and I'm very thankful that I didn't go into that room because he is very, very scarred from it. He, he wishes he wouldn't have ever seen her like that. So it's really, it's really hard to see your seven pound baby with a tube in her mouth that's keeping her alive. And she's hooked up to all of these machines and she's not moving and she's just like her tongue is hanging out of her mouth and it, because the tube is so big and she's so small. And it, it sucked. It was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And so we, uh, they were working on her for a couple hours. They brought her back a couple times. Um, and then finally we just said, stop trying. Um, because at that point she, even if they were to bring her back, back you know she was on a vent at this point even if they were there to keep trying she was brain dead there was no activity in her brain so she would have been a vegetable and um we didn't want that for her uh she had already been in the hospital most of her life so it was it was terrible and actually um so my husband and i uh we are in couples therapy which not for anything awful we just were both proactive about mental health and we had watched this um, Brene Brown uh, program on HBO called uh, The Alice of the Heart. And there's this this part of here. And, like, the whole thing is talking about your feelings, giving names to your feelings and what they actually mean. And there was this painting of uh, – and her description – or the, the name of the painting is called Anguish. And I don't remember the name of the artist. But as an artist, seeing that painting, it it hurt me like way down deep. So it's the picture of uh, a mother, you or sheep 
with her baby and the baby's like has blood coming out of its mouth and whatnot. It's obviously dying and all around it are vultures. And that to me was like, that's exactly what that feels like. You're watching your child die in front of everybody. And so, um, my mom and dad show up and my mom has a complete literal body breakdown. She just loses it. They actually had to take her to the hospital because she, uh, she couldn't walk. So my mom had just, I mean, just completely lost it. And, uh, it was just, they took her to the hospital and everything. And because, you know, they're at like a children's hospital and they're like, well, we can't treat you here. <laughs> so, uh, my husband and I had, had gone into the room and we had made the choice to take her off the vent because there was no point in keeping her on the vent. And, it's just, this is very graphic and I'm sorry for people who are going to get triggered by it to feel the weight of your dead child's body in your arms is something that's indescribable. It is just like, you know, especially as a mother, you, I brought this child into the world. I carried her for 37 weeks and then to just watch her body change colors because there's no life in her anymore is just, it's anguish. It's just complete and utter anguish. And my husband and I were just inconsolable and just, just, I mean, it was just wailing. It was just wailing and it was just so sad. And so, and then we had to leave her there because it's not like we can take her body. (laughs) You know, she had to stay there. They had to take care of, of her remains and everything like that. And it's just like so surreal his brother picked us up and we got into the car and it's like, we just went back home and thankfully his brother had gone back to the house and like picked up all of her stuff and kind of put it away for us. But we just both crawled into bed and just cried our eyes out and fell asleep crying. And what the, and I mean, at that time I was working, I had to go back to work five days later and I had to, to pick up and I had to act like, you know, I was Okay. I was not okay, not in any sense of the word, but you know, it's my job. So thankfully I had really awesome friends uh, and like we had like cubes and whatnot that would, you know, if I'm having a really bad day, they would kind of crowd around me when I was crying so that people couldn't see and, you know, what's wrong with her, blah, 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 because not everybody knew what had happened. So that was incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. And then we get a call while we're at her funeral that his grandpa died. So he had to immediately take off and go back to Arkansas uh, because his grandpa died. And so this is crazy. This is like, this is crazy to me. So he had his heart attack and a stroke. Three days later, she was born. She died. Three days later, he died. And she was named after his wife. So that is just... That to me is crazy. But so my husband's got like dual dueling um, grief, grief going on. Yeah. So everything kind of settles down. We didn't really celebrate any holidays. We didn't do Christmas for a couple of years after that because why? It was just us. Uh, we tried, we were trying to have a baby. So she died in October. So we were trying to have a baby again. And I I hope I can articulate this correctly. I, I did want to have another child, 
But um, when I got pregnant with my second, I did not want the pregnancy, if that makes sense. Uh, it was it was five months later. Well, I mean, you had dread. You, you thought you were going to go through the same horrible yep. thing again. It's not that you didn't want to have a child. You didn't want to go through what you just went through. Exactly. And, and it was just, you know, we had to do like all this genetic testing and she was fine, thankfully. And I'm, I'm diabetic. So, you know, I had gestational diabetes. So I was on an, ex, you know, crazy extreme regimen, which I can't follow because my brain is broken. <laughs> so I began to resent the pregnancy. And I, I just want to make it clear. This has nothing to do with my daughter. If she hears this 10 years down the road, I love my daughter so much. But to go from having uh, her older sister and then having to watch her die and then immediately getting pregnant afterwards and then having to have this constant fear of death made me hate my pregnancy because there was no joy. There was just, it was just constant stress. And I had to, you know, I'm still working in all of this as well. And my husband, he is a, he's a, he's a disabled veteran. He was injured in Iraq. Um, so he's home because he has, you know, that's his, his pension. So he just, he hid, he hid and slept and just was in the dark all the time. And he stopped, he didn't go to the appointments with me when I, with my second one and which caused a lot of resentment because I'm like, I don't want to do this alone. I don't want to do this by myself. But, um, he at the time could not handle it. And I mean, now looking back on it, I am, I get it. I get it. Well, during all of this, so we find out that I'm pregnant at five weeks We've, with all of my pregnancies. I knew it very early, but at five weeks. And so, uh, we didn't tell a whole lot of people because obviously, but, um, so we told my mom and my dad and we had had genetic testing. So we knew that she was okay. And then my dad dies. Yeah. He, uh, he knew that I was pregnant. He knew it was a girl and he knew her name. It's Z, but uh, she's named after a very famous princess, um, which he found hilarious. But uh, my dad dies. Uh, he had like a, what they call him a widow maker stroke heart attack. And my mom, it's actually, this is, it's the day of the royal wedding with Harry and uh, Meghan because they were laughing about it that morning. Like, this is so stupid. <laughs> you know, we don't have that here. So. And she said that she heard like a, he had like his own room. Um, she heard like a weird noise went in there and he was, uh, not okay. And he was dead before he hit the floor, I guess is like a, a small comfort as he didn't have to suffer, but you know, they live an hour away. So my mom called, uh, and she wanted to talk to my husband and not me. And I was like, okay, something's not right. And so my mom had said to him, Hey, something happened. I need you guys to come. I need you to, to drive her up here to the hospital. Um, something's wrong with my dad's name was David. Something's wrong with David. And that didn't happen. I got in that car and I drove, <laughs> I drove so fast. It takes an hour to get there. I got there in 35 minutes. And my, <laughs> my husband's like, you want to slow down? <laughs> no, no. Um, at that point he, they had brought him back in the ambulance and he was on, um, life support. And I just, 
lost it. I just lost it. I'm like heaving sobs. My sister is just losing her mind because those two were like thick as thieves. They were best friends. And, you know, she's calling people and my mom's trying to make medical decisions. And this wonderful social worker, which I'm sure we were nasty to, just would not leave us alone. (laughs) And I'm sorry if she ever hears this. Um, but I decided I wasn't going to see him. I, I, I couldn't, I had just cremated my daughter. I just watched somebody die. I, I can't do it again. And so my mom and my sister went in there and they took him off of it and he died. And it was so hard because my dad and I had like a really, uh, strenuous relationship, very much like the tales old as time, the emotionally avoidant father, (laughs) It was very, it was very hard. And I'm thankful that my father knew that everything was going to be okay. But at the same time, he is greatly missed because my other two daughters will never know him. And they deserved to because he loved, loved S, loved her so much. And he didn't want to uh, get close to her. He, he didn't want to hold her at first. He didn't want to have a relationship with her because, you know, I think it was just too much for him to lose a grandchild. And by the end of it, though, he, you know, he would come steal her on the weekends so he could get some sleep. And, you know, they would call and FaceTime and just want to, it was just, it's beautiful. And I wish my other two daughters could have had that. But in any case, so he dies and it blows my family apart. It just shatters us. Um, it's my mom, my sister and I, and my sister became a recluse, uh, emotionally and she started drinking heavily and she just self-destructed. I mean, I can understand that. Whereas I am a catastrophizer. So, you know, everybody I meet is going to die and, uh, you know, I have to rationalize, people like if, if I want to have relationships with people because they're just going to die or kind of thing. Cause OCD is great. I get it because I've, I don't think people are just going to die, but having had all the loss in my life, I, if somebody's struggling with addiction, if somebody's struggling with something like that for a long time, I just thought they're never going to change. And I would distance myself from them because Everybody in my family died from addiction or from mental health issues. So I would distance myself that way. I didn't think everyone was going to die around me, but I just thought nobody changes. Nobody's able to pull themselves out of this. And I've been, I've been shown that I'm very wrong with that and I'm glad, but it's hard not to think that way when you've been shown the opposite. And you're like, and not only had, my daughter died a month later, one of my beloved dogs I had to put down and then my dad dies. And it, and at this point we're up to, at least for me, three things that I care about dying, but four for my husband because his grandpa died the same week that, that S died. And it's like, bam, 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 bam. And it's like, how, how do you rectify mourning four things, three people in that short amount of time without short circuiting, because, you know, I had my dad for, see, I'm going to be 39 on Friday. So I had my dad for like 35 years of my life 
and I had my daughter for four and a half months. Is, is it quantity? Is it quality? Is it, you know, do I mourn my daughter more because I didn't have a lot of time with her? Or do I mourn my dad because I had so much time with him? And I'm, it's black and white thinking because that's the way my brain works. It's, there is no in between. Obviously, realistically and logically, I know that there, you know, there's nuance to everything and, and it's a gray area and everything like that. But in order to cope, I had to shut one off in my brain to, to mourn the other one. And it was incredibly difficult because I felt like I was slighting my dad or slighting my daughter because I couldn't think about the two of them at the same time. In the meantime of all of this, I'm still pregnant with, (laughs) so not only do I have crazy hormones, you know, my dad has just died. My family's blown apart. Um, There was some like crazy infighting on my dad's side of the family and, yeah, as there always is with when, when death comes around, but you know, it's very, it's, it's just very much alone because my husband, husband is still recuperating and having to deal with his grief. And, and, and so I'm just, I'm literally like sometimes just sitting at night in our house, just staring at a wall because he can't talk to me. I have nobody to talk to. My mom is inconsolable. My sister won't answer her phone kind of thing. So I just, alone, alone, alone all the time. And then pregnant and worrying that I'm going to, I'm going to lose this baby every time that I have a bit of spotting or every time that, you know, something doesn't feel right. And so thankfully with her pregnancy, everything was okay until the end. I had gone into the doctor and my blood pressure was raised. So they put me in the hospital for six weeks because I was on bed rest Uh, So I had to completely leave my job. It ate up like my FMLA and I was stuck in a hospital for six freaking weeks because, and I was bored. There was nothing to do. It was awful. Um, But so I had her, this is where the fun starts. So (laughs) as if it wasn't fun already. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. This is where it gets kind of gory and I apologize in advance, but so I had a C-section with, um, with Z. So afterwards the C-section did not heal properly. So, uh, 21 days after she was born, I was admitted to the hospital, um, because I had to have an emergency surgery because my C-section had gone necrotic and I had a 26 inch hole in my abdomen of just dead flesh. It was Flesh-eating bacteria had gotten into my C-section. And you can very easily go septic from there. Yes. Yeah. The The doctor was like, you are you are literally five days from organ failure. That is, he's like, I'm so glad that you, uh, you said something. Because in a normal pregnancy, which I honestly think that this should change, they don't, even if it's a C-section, they don't check your sutures for like weeks, like four weeks. And then they normally have you come back. And as somebody who had never had a C-section before, I was like, you know, there's a smell, but like, I don't really know if that's a normal surgery smell because at that point I had only had my tonsils out. And so like, it wasn't anything crazy serious. So I wasn't sure. Um, I had noticed that there was like a black, I guess, I don't want to say growth because it's not exactly what it was. It was like a bubble. And um, I had worked in a medical field, so I had a lot of nurse friends and I was sending pictures and I was like, hey, is this normal? And they're like, "Mm, I don't really know. So I went to like one of those overnight urgent cares and the doctor, this freaking fucking doctor, 
He's like, no, you're fine. It's healing fine. <laughs> and so I, and I had had what's called a, a pain ball. So it's like essentially this ball that you, know, that you have like attached to your body um, with these like little tubes in your, where your C-section is. And it just admits pain medication for a couple of weeks, but like you have to wear it like a purse and whatnot. So I couldn't f- really feel anything. But no, I was not okay because the next day I went to my OBGYN and she's like, okay, I'm going to need you to go to a wound care specialist immediately. So they're like, okay. So we go there and the wound care doctor's like, oh yeah, that's not good. And so she, she was a wonderful woman. Uh, I'm sobbing because I'm like, I have a new, I have like literally a newborn. Like she's not even a month old. And I have, was spiking 104 fevers. I was shivering. I couldn't eat. I didn't eat for like, I guess like five weeks. I lost like 30 pounds in a, in a month. That's crazy. She cleaned it all up, went back two weeks later. And she's like, um, I'm going to need you to go to the hospital right now. Like right now. And she's like, I, I need you to have somebody meet you at the hospital to pick up your daughter. And you need to go to the hospital right now. And I was like, it's that serious. And she's like, I'm serious. You need to go now. So we get there. And I think it was like, I don't know, eight hours later, I had emergency surgeries. I, I lost my mind. I was sobbing hysterically because I'm, I'm terrified. I had just gone through a surgery and it was incredibly painful. I don't think, I don't think people realize how incredibly painful a C-section is. It's, it's like burning. I mean, you're literally your, your body is split on the inside and the outside. So it's just straight burning all the time. It's like somebody poured hot gasoline on your body and, and lit it on fire. So anyway, go to have that. And my surgeon was wonderful. And then I was in the hospital for two weeks by myself. And, um, you know, I could see my daughter occasionally, but, uh, because of the, my dad dying and the emotional stress that my family had, my husband and I didn't have any support. We didn't have anybody to watch the baby. So he had to be home with her and he had to take her to a hospital. That's where sick people are. So I was there by myself for two weeks. I'm still not working. I'm on FMLA and my FMLA is going to run out. They're like, they, they wouldn't work with me whatsoever. So I ended up losing my job because uh, after the surgery happened and they had to take out all the dead tissue I mean, it was the size of um, a football. That's how much I had to take out of my body. And I'm 5'4". I'm a tiny person. So I had to wear a wound vac, which is, it's this machine that they hook up to wherever your wound is. And essentially, I use a suction to rub the raw area um, to cause skin to form. Um, But it's painful and it's smelly and it's not fun. So uh, they wouldn't work with me and I lost my job, but there's this one moment in the hospital that these, these poor nurses, they were, I love nurses. I just want to say how much I love nurses and they are unbelievably underrated and they don't get enough help. These, these women took such good care of me because I was losing my shit. I was crying nonstop. I had postpartum depression. I couldn't see my child because you know, I was in the hospital. I almost died. Not, not hyperbole. I, I was dying. And, uh, so this one time this asshole fucking asshole doctor comes in and seven o'clock in the morning. And so they, what they do is they take this, it's called debridement foam. They put it on 
the wound, it's uh, kind of like a, like a sponge, but it's a hard sponge. So that's what causes the friction. Normally you take pain medication before they rip that off because your skin forms to it. And um, that's what its job is. This doctor, nope. He just comes in and he rips it out of me. And the nurse is like, what are you doing? She needs pain medication. And he's like, I've got rounds. And so she's shoving um, Dilaudid into my IV as he's doing this. And I pass out because of the pain. <laughs> Just like, So I've got all of this. I've got incredible amounts of medical trauma. Then I've got this asshole doctor. Then I lose my job. And so for like six months, I... Uh, I couldn't get out of bed. I would just cry uncontrollably. I, at the same time, I'm trying to take care of my daughter who I resented her entire pregnancy. So I didn't bond with her for well over a year. And that's hard because, you know, everybody is like, oh, you should bond with your baby immediately. But I can't because I almost died. And I, you know, so that was really, really hard, really, really hard. And just, it really changed my life because not only did I lose my job, but I, I feel like I did die. I feel like a part of me died and I couldn't find who I was for a very, very long time. And thankfully now it's been a few years later, I'm back to, you know, a semi normal self, but, uh, I still have incredible amounts of, um, medical trauma. Going to the dentist is not fun. Uh, shots are awful. I am a diabetic, so I have to take insulin. So every single day I'm shoving a needle on my body and every single day it is a battle for me to do it because even if it doesn't hurt, I'm still putting things in my body. So that was it for a long time. It was just, we had resigned to the fact that it was just going to be her. And then, uh, whoops, comes the third. (laughs) And so when that happened, um, I was actually, my business started. I'm an artist. Uh, I'm a resin artist and a painter and I make jewelry and and all of this stuff. So with Nationwide Children's, when your child is in hospice or palliative care, they have a social worker that follows you until their death. And then two years after they die to make sure that one, you're not going to harm yourself and two, that you're, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be all right. Um, and she knew that I was an artist and she introduced me to this specific painting style. And then that became my grief therapy. And I've been an artist my whole life, but it was really my, very much traditional artistry, I guess. It was like, you know, acrylic scenes and drawing and things like that. It wasn't really abstract stuff. So um, because I have obsessive compulsive disorder, my one of my compulsions is neatness and structure. And it's something that I will ruminate about over and over and over. And so having all of these paintings being abstract, it forced me to accept that this is what it was and that there's beautiful things in chaos. And that helped me so much in my grieving process because it was, you know, I have to accept that she was a beautiful creature and that she's not here anymore and that it was chaos and everything. But look how beautiful my daughter was and is and how loved she is and how every time that you do this painting, you are with her. And so that's how my business started. I mean, it's been five years now. And because I lost my job, I had to... Got to do something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... 
um, with specifically with my art, um, I make cremation pieces. So I had, uh, someone last year, her husband, unfortunately, um, lost his battle with depression. And, and so she gave me his ashes and I, uh, put them into big, beautiful resin beach pieces. And so they were able to touch his ashes whenever they wanted to. And I just actually dropped one off to a client yesterday where she's on hospice. And so, her ashes will go in there after she passes out. I'll, I'll put them in, in her painting. So it's it's become kind of like a beauty and death situation. And I'm very fortunate and I'm very privileged that I do have, you know, the capability to own my own business and to, you know, not not have to immediately go out and find a new job. I'm able to kind of, you know, be home with my girls and stuff. And I, I was able to graduate college and actually going back for my, my bachelor's and stuff. So I'm, I'm thankful. Now, do I wish I had her? Absolutely. I would give it all up if I knew that she was going to come back to me healthy and I would have her. But that's not a reality. Quite honestly, no matter what you believe in, she's in a much better place because she was in a lot of pain when she died. And I know I hate when people are, you know, look at me weird when I'm like, she's in a better place, but it's true. She's, she's not being poked and she's not being prodded and, you know, she's not having to have her feeding tube and, and all of this stuff. And it's just like, that's so exhausting on a, on a baby, on a four pound baby. I mean, everything's a struggle. I mean, yeah. yeah. And all you know is pain. Just off hand when somebody says, I'm sorry for your loss. Or when somebody says, just let yourself grieve. Yeah. What is your response to that? Typically? I hate that. I hate that. I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. Of course you're sorry for my loss. My daughter died, you know, and it's not like, that's not coming from, um, I guess a shitty place. It's like, you don't have to say that. I already, I already know. And, and I kept saying, thank you, you know, when they would say that. And then I stopped because I don't, I don't want to thank them for what's happened. If that makes sense. Like uh, I just tell them, you know, thank you. It was terrible. It was awful. You know, it was something that unfortunately we had to go through, but you know, we're still standing kind of thing instead of just, you know, thanks and moving on. I, I mean, I am grieving. I've gone through grief therapy, which I cannot recommend enough. I mean, really it helped me, because I have obsessive compulsive disorder and I have my um, compulsions come out in intrusive thoughts. So I have really horrific thoughts all the time. And it really helped me to center those compulsions so that I could then process not only her grief, but then the grief of everybody else. And I cannot recommend grief therapy enough. And I went through luckily with Living in Columbus, we had Nationwide Children's here, which is a huge, huge um, network for children's hospitals. And they uh, they helped us with the grief therapy, which was great. I'm so grateful for. Noted. I might be seeking that out. <laughs> this is a great city for, for people who have sick children. You know, when it comes to the business and like we go to fairs and festivals, if anybody we, is a NICU or PICU nurse at, uh, at um, children's, their money is not good there. We will give them whatever they want for free because they took such good care of her. I'm I'm thankful that I had her. I really am. But at the same time, I'm thankful she's not here. And she she made me a mom. And that's like that's a gift that a lot of women don't get to have. And 
motherhood is really hard, especially now, especially in the political environment that we're in. It's very, very hard on a woman. And I don't, I don't want people to think that I, I'm not aware of, of what I have. I am very much aware and very grateful and thankful for the life that I've built because I certainly didn't come from, you know, this kind of emotional um, wherewithal and self-reflection and, and stuff like that. I've had to work at it for many, many years. I've been in therapy uh, specifically in regards to S for a little over five years now. I have a fantastic therapist. You know, one of my superpowers I like to say is hyper awareness, and that's not it's not a good thing. It's from trauma. It's it's it, you know it's a, a trauma response. The amount of loss that you went through in such a short amount of time, like that's insurmountable. Like m- most of the time, if somebody suffers that much loss, it's because their entire family died in a car crash. I mean, that's the level of boom, boom, boom loss that you suffered. It's, it's terrible. It's awful. It's, it's really hard to parent through trauma too, because the previous traumas that I've had in my life, even before all of this happened, it molds you as a person, especially your relationship with your parents and you know, the roles that you had to take on as a child, like I was the oldest. So, um, you know, I was, I was raising my sister at the age of 12, which she hates me for (laughs) as the oldest. I then I take on those roles, but it is an emptiness that will never go away. And when we take family pictures, we actually take a phone and we put her picture on the phone and we put it up in our family pictures because she is there. She is always there. She's not hidden. We have like a quote shrine to her with her pictures and her hats and all of that stuff. And like, you know, our daughters will know who she is because she is their sister. And I want that for my kids. It's, it's not my daughter's responsibility to pick up my broken pieces. They are not the glue that holds me together. I am the glue that holds me together. They deserve to have a full cup. And so if I have to go through 15 more years of therapy until I'm, I'm better, I'm going to do it. I will be there to pick him up when I need to. And, and that's what I'm, I'm also thankful for that. Like I have a partner who, if I'm having a bad day, I can just say I'm having a bad S day and he knows exactly what I'm saying. And, and I don't have to explain myself or, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to make myself something that I'm not. And I, I actually, I made a vow to myself um, when we first started dating that I would never change who I am for another man or another person. It was just, this is who I am. You either accept who I am or you don't um, because it's exhausting always having to hold up a mask. And so, I mean, this is me, this is who I am. And uh, that, that worked in my favor. So thankfully. 